Welcome to the Valley College Connection, where John Kawai and Scott Wigan, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Valley College. We are joined today by Jonathan Arnold, Director of the Extension Program here at Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you both. I appreciate the opportunity. Let's start off by uh, hearing how you got to Valley College, and let's take it take it as far back as you'd like to. Uh, you know, what type of student were you? Uh, what did you major in? How, yeah. how did you get here? Yeah, so going way, way back, I, I am a Valley boy, so I guess that makes it appropriate to tether into Valley College. And uh, being a Valley boy, I took the PSAT here way back in the day. I don't want to say what year. Took a chem class here as a high school student. Um, and which high school is this? Birmingham. Oh, so you're, you're right by here. Yeah, yeah, I'm right by here. So grew up very close to here, only a few miles away. Basically, grew up in the Valley. Undergraduate work was at USC. I uh, was able to obtain a four-year academic scholarship there. So you're a good student coming out of high school, or how did I was a pretty good student? I was the typical like if I worked really hard, I could maintain a B plus or A minus mm-hmm. GPA. So you know, so that was basically me. Not not genius level by a long shot, but definitely hardworking. And then what was the pull for USC? Uh, the pull for USC was they had an advanced academic program there called Thematic Options, which is still in existence. It was a variation on the Great Book series. Mm-hmm. Um, they admitted 50 students per semester to this program at USC and generally offered the admitted students into this program a four-year scholarship, which made it very, very attractive for me. And then what did you study? I was pre-law at USC. Um, so it was kind of like the old British degree, which still exists, called PPE, or Politics, Philosophy, and Economics, which is a polite way of saying high-level general ed. Okay. So so you were you read all the classics, analyzed all the classics? Yeah. Can you elaborate on the Great Book series for people who don't know about it? Yeah. A lot of schools have gone back to professors using only or primarily primary source text to educate out of not too much reliance on secondary source textbooks. So we were reading the collected works of Aristotle as a Mm -hmm. freshman. We were reading Plato, and obviously not the original Greek, but we were looking at Mark, Karl Marx, the great philosophers, the great political thinkers, Rousseau and everybody else. And it was just an integrated way of looking at all of this. Uh, This program was at SC, started, I think it was 1979. I stepped into it in 1984. And uh, it served me pretty well. And I found out quite soon in my career, first in business, then in law, that it was actually a really good grounding for critical thinking. So what was the difference of getting an education, reading source material versus the surveys and summaries a lot of times we read in the textbook? Um, I think it allowed for a dialectic in class to occur where the student's analysis is guided by the professors and TAs. That became the secondary sources. So I think that was that was pretty good. I'd be the first to admit, though, as is, is, uh, now adjunct faculty here, that um, there's a lot to be said for quality secondary sources, too. But focusing on the primary sources got good. I found a lot of education at the undergraduate level, they were getting away from the primary sources, you know, or I can actually say conversely going way too deep in the primary sources, like, let's just talk about the footnotes of the primary sources. So, yeah, I find when I talk to kids going to the real expensive uh, prep schools, especially back east, yeah, the big difference I see in the education is that there's a real emphasis in reading the the primary sources, yeah, they're Mm going to read the Greeks from the original authors. And they're not 
reading out of textbooks. It's not about memorizing, but it's about analysis. Exactly. And understanding what someone felt within the context of where he was at, at that moment. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. So there was, there was a lot of good approach to that. And just as a little bit of a side, when we studied even um, things that they would just be covered to kind of speaking to your point, a mythology class, students often read just secondary sources, Bullfinch's mythology, for yeah. example, where if you read the source material, you have to think about it from just like you said, from the point of view of the authors, the people in that time. I had uh, one professor who put it really well is that just because it's old doesn't necessarily mean it's good, but just because it's old also doesn't mean people weren't almost as intelligent as we are today. We just have more historical data and more machinery, put another way. Uh, and this has stayed with me forever when we looked at some ancient Egyptian writings and the concept of how the rising of the Nile up and down influenced everything because that influenced farming and food. He said, you have some clever kids sitting on the banks of the Nile back in the day and notice that flooding seems to occur within a certain amount of days of, say, a full moon or a particular star pattern. That develops into a concept of mythology mm -hmm. and farming and what is essentially what we would call today pagan, it's sort of a pagan approach to things. But the real value that in the context of time becomes very important and that's critical thinking i think a lot of times people poo-poo these kind of majors thinking what kind of job you can get and what people find is that the philosophy majors make more money than sociology and the um, psych majors yeah even though you don't know what their first job is this idea of being able to do critical thinking take in context and if you give me a few givens i can tell you where this leads exactly and i think this kind of Education is just becoming de-emphasized because you can't Wikipedia it. Yeah, that's a good approach. And as I'll explain, I guess, as we get into it, like in our paralegal program, a lot of what I teach in terms of legal reasoning is just a variation on the basic Aristotelian syllogism. Mm -hmm. So if you know that, you know, you know how to think critically, you know how to approach, which I think has actually become more important because um, with the increase of velocity of change, something that may seem like a really great major or minor or something right. may change. There's, there's danger, actually, I think, in being overly specific. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that now that we can look up everything, just kind of knowing facts is really not that important anymore. It's yeah. really <laughs> sort of what does this mean in, in this context, and if the context changes, does it still mean the same thing? Right. Right. <laughs> I think that training is, is, is even more critical now. I would, I mean, violent agreement, as lawyers often say. <laughs> I was downstairs in the library just a couple of days ago when we were looking at some equipment down there that was being replaced, and it was next to the section of books that are kind of part of the reference collection. And I saw sitting back there was the, the Great Books Collection. Yeah. So they have it sitting down there in the library, you know, however many volumes are in that collection. There's kind of different variations of that that gets, you know, kind of compiled and curated over time. Yeah. But it's interesting to see that. Any, any students or anybody listening, you can go to the library and see what, you know, what's actually sort of in that collection. You're reminded of the great words by that famous philosopher in The Simpsons, the slimy attorney, Lionel Hutz, who pulls down a law book and he looks up and he says, good God, not only do these books look good on the shelf, they're chock full of useful information. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it's a variation on the theme saying, you know, what are the classics, whether it's, you know, music or literature, or art or philosophy. And the answer is it was something that was news then and has stayed news today. So yeah. there's a lot of value in that.
So you're a student at Birmingham. You take the PSATs. You've taken a chemistry class. Yeah. What was it that uh, led you to USC? Was it a conversation with a counselor? Was it parents? Was it how did you you know become aware of the scholarship? It was a combination of those things. That there was some financial pressure at the time. My father. I grew up in the entertainment industry, but by no means rich. Very middle class. Uh, and it was at the cusp of the actors' strike in '83. So it was a very difficult financial time. So when the possibility of attending USC came along, and both my parents are UCLA alums, they were ready to disown me until I said full scholarship. And then they were like, go Trojan. (laughs) So um, it was that, and it was also that program at USC. And I'll be honest, what I call academic practicality. They said, you know, based on your interest, and you guarantee you admission to the film school as a film minor, which is what I wanted. I didn't want to major in it. So all those things combined Mm -hmm. made for a good opportunity. So. And then what, how did you transition from film to law? Um, basically what happened is I'd always been a bit of a tech nerd and a bit of a geek. I learned how to program computers and machine language. I'm no expert at it mm-hmm. now, but I can use words like say, oh, I kind of learned COBOL and Fortran, practically dead languages. Yeah. <laughs> now, but, um, uh, I got a job while I was a senior at USC at a software company. And by default, I kind of became the business contracts guy. And I was going to take a break between uh, going, completing my bachelor's degree and going off to law school, you know, take the LSAT and take a break. And the job offer was just really good. And the program, uh, pardon me, the, the company grew and grew and grew and grew and I grew with it, both in terms of money I was making, which was good, and job duties I had. Eventually the light bulb went off over my head. I think I'd like to go to law school. Through a very circuitous route, I won't get into all the details, I had had seven years of Latin as an undergraduate and then in high school. Um, then later German, but that's a whole other story. We had a friend who was a graduate of Cambridge, a family friend, who wrote a recommendation. And at that time, several of the colleges at Oxford were looking for American law students to study what was then European community and now European Union law. Mm-hmm. So again, kind of a neat opportunity. Reared its wonderful head, and I just kind of jumped at it and grabbed it. So went off to England for a few years and went to law school. Wow! And what was Oxford like? Was it a culture shock? Yes and no. There were some. There were some key differences. I'll go through the three biggies. The one is that it's just a college, or a group of colleges to be specific, and it's very old, <laughs> with a lot of old books. Um, it's a different system, though. The second point is it's a very different system than the United States system. They have uh, the t- what they call the tutorial system. You're usually meeting with your professors, which they call dons, which is not saying like a mafia don. It's short for dominus or master. And do they wear the robes? They do. It's actually in uh, examina- most examinations in the liberal arts at Oxford, uh, you get your question about an hour before your test in the examination building, and you go in wearing the formal robes and like a tuxedo, and you're arguing before a panel of dons. It's like an appellate court argument. So I got pretty articulate fast, mm-hmm. uh, maintained a wonderful grades there. They grade on a uh, grading system from alpha down with double pluses and double minuses. So most of my grades were in the alpha range, which was pretty good. Um, but what was really interesting is they, uh, they, they found the American students uh, very rigorous. As one of my dons put it, you might not be as clever as us Brits, <laughs> but you work harder. 
<laughs> so, which is good. So yeah. all that dovetailed nicely with law. One of the other, the third thing about Oxford, you know, it's people say like, what's their secret? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. No, but I can tell you is most of the dons, your instruction is not only tutorial. So it's meeting like we would be meeting here. And you can imagine in two hours of just back and forth, you can get like a week or two weeks work done, a war covered academically. But they actually compel you to look at the source material and then the key, the high quality secondary sources. It would be kind of equivalent if you had a professor here teaching American law and they're saying, I want you to read some of the key sources about, you know, say news reports about what was going on before, during, and right after the American Revolution. And now I want you to also read like Tocqueville's texts about his approach to it. And that's kind of how they teach at Oxford. They say, here's the primary stuff, here are the key secondary materials, and you have to analyze how each secondary source talked about the primary source. So this is pre-internet, right? Yeah. How did you go and research and find these? Uh, it's, it's my days there. When I wasn't in class, I wasn't, uh, and I'm going to get a little emotional here and thinking about the beautiful memories. It's not because it looks kind of like Hogwarts, but each college there has a pub on campus. <laughs> that oozes or death But basically, you're spending, I'd say, about one to two hours class or classroom environment per day, and then six to ten hours per day in the library. So the answer is, when I wasn't in class and I wasn't quaffing a beverage and I wasn't getting a meal, we're just, especially those reading, as they call it, law, which is pretty intense there, your butt's in a chair in the library. So... The answer to that question is I trotted off to the Bodleian Law Library and I spent six to eight hours every day except Sunday there. Sure. Wow. A lot of reading. Just putting in the time. Putting in the time. So. What was the ratio of student to dawn? Um, in terms of class, it was, I'd say, one-to-one or two-to-one. There were some lectures. Like, obviously, if you're taking a class in, like, especially the sciences or political economy, there's a board. But it was rare. As a matter of fact, I remember at the Bodleian Law Library, I asked one of the librarians, is there a computer here? I would needed a typewriter to type up uh, my notes mm-hmm. in preparation for an exam. She says, no, the typewriter's not working, but there is a computer that has, you know, WordPerfect, this software called WordPerfect on it. You know, you're a colonial. <laughs> Might you know how to use it? Because we don't. <laughs> so they give me the key and I went down the basement and there was the computer. So this was like, this was like the early 90s. So yeah, pre-internet. So what happened after Oxford? Came back here, had the units processed and uh, then was able to sit for the California bar, uh, which I did. So did pass that the first time and never looked back and just started in the practice of law. And the, and the law transfers? Yeah, Oxford is a, uh, the British system is common law as we are. It's the system basically in the United States, Canada, everything that once was or, or kind of still is part of the British Commonwealth uh, or was a British colony has with the common law system. The key differences, but fundamentally the same basic law. But did, um, you didn't have to learn a whole new sort of library of cases? Um, some key cases in terms of concepts, but the law does transfer. Okay. Constitutional law was the biggest difference. Britain has an unwritten constitution, some written stuff. We have, the United States was the first country to have a fully complete formal written constitution. Also federalism operates uniquely in the United States from everywhere else. I see. But pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the analogy I use, and forgive the witticism, is it's kind of like learning new words to the same tune. Okay. You know, God save the queen becomes God bless America. So changing up some of the words. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So what happened after you passed the bar? Um, I started working right away uh, at uh, for Boeing. 
I got a position at Rocketdyne. They were looking for people who understood international law. They were looking to expand their businesses. And uh, did that for many years, transitioned to another company called Spectrolab, um, which is not only where they got the name Spacely Sprockets based on this, but Spectrolab basically more or less invented the solar cell. So, so was this patent law or is this corporate this law? This was corporate law, business law, uniform commercial code law, transactional law, export control, export law, some international law, letter of credit law. I mm-hmm. call it nerd law. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it immensely. Unfortunately, aerospace in Southern California is... Um, 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 the companies are good. The people I worked with were great. I wouldn't trade the experience for everything, but they're they're not our father's Chevrolet. Sure. You know, back in the day, Rocketdyne employed in the San Fernando Valley, like, I don't know, probably about 10,000, 11,000 people. And the building I used to work in and then later taught in is now a parking lot next door to where my daughter shops in sure. Warner Center. So it's just the it's just the nature of the beast. Were you there for the um, fall of communism and just the death of aerospace? Yeah, that was a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I saw that the, a lot of aerospace got its funding based on whatever you want to call it, the military-industrial complex. Uh, a lot of actually what happened, though, in government contracting, public contracting, which became one of my specialties, uh, is that it actually there were a lot of good things about it, and it kind of made itself obsolete through efficiency. Sure. Put another way, if, if uh, I'll give you a perfect example now. Students can relate to the SpaceX uh, reuses the uh, fuselage for a rocket, which saves like 25% on the cost of launching a satellite. Plus, the satellites don't need as many parts to have all the telemetry, so you need fewer people working on it. And mm-hmm. From that, you get layoffs. So it's it's not evil. It's just kind of unintended consequences. Sure. I remember going into UCLA, and all my friends were mechanical engineers, and yeah. electrical engineers, because everyone told them, there will always be a job with you because there will always be the Cold War. Right. And then the the year that we graduated, uh, Cold War ended. And there yeah. were all these unemployed mechanical engineers and, and electrical engineers. And I remember my friends just having to compete against people with 10 years of experience. Yeah, there's, I saw kind of the similar thing. I was always on the business administrative side, but I saw the similar thing. Yeah. It's just we uh, still making good products, whether they're sold privately or to the government or whatever agency of the government, but we don't need 500 of them anymore. We right. need 51, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we used to make a new fighter about every 10 years, 10, yeah. 15 years, right? And now there's probably, in my son's lifetime, maybe two fighters, right? There'll be two generations of different fighters, and that's about it just because there's no pressure to like keep, keep innovating. Right. Right. And some of the innovations, too, to press on that point, are um, don't require the sea change and massive amount of people. I mean, 3D printing was a huge revolution in yeah. a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So still able to produce the velocity of making, say, fighter jets or whatever it is. But we don't need 15 guys drafting, you know, the fuselage. We need one guy working part-time plus to do that and two high-grade 3D printers. Yeah, I, I remember University of Utah, that was that was the big thing that we were creating where we are trying to create a 3D laser printer, yeah. but for metal. So right now they right. have the laser printer where you get a nice little plastic thing. Yeah. So we would build a car engine from a plastic thing and then we would press a button and say, make it. And then we would put a block of metal there and it would mill all the pieces. Yeah, amazing. And, and then you're done, right? And that was, once you have one machine that can just build the engine com- completely, they're cheaper than people. Yeah, yeah. So there's, that's a big part of it too. Yeah. yeah the, the, cult, the peace dividend, as it were, was not great for aerospace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The piece is expensive. Exactly. <laughs>
So when did you make the transition into teaching? Um, kind of organically. It kind of started there. Uh, I was at Rocketdyne and Cal State Northridge was kind of exporting what they were doing through uh, what is now, it's, it was called the College of Extended Learning. Mm-hmm. It's now the Roland Sang College at Cal State Northridge. They ran their Master Public Administration program and is trained in public contract law that was a very small cadre of people, even in Southern California, that did it. It's like we'd have these meetings through something called the National Contract Management Association. And it's like, we go, oh, so you're that guy who wrote that book that everybody has on that shelf. Just me. It's like, you could have fit all of them almost in a room about the <laughs> You guys could have all hung out and yeah, had lunch. And huh? it was literally somebody, it, it, they said at CSUN, they said, we need somebody to teach basic public contract law. And I said, I'll do it. You know, just think, hey, this is good for my career. Again, public service, a little bit of money. Maybe get a faculty parking space. <laughs> the covenant, covenant space, exactly. And did it, and that was that was good fun. And it's expanded from there organically. Um, became a member as an attorney, got elected uh, to be a trustee of the San Fernando Valley Bar Association, mm-hmm. and that's where I met the former former director of this program, Dr. Annie Reed, who's still with Valley College, and was talking uh, during a wonderful dinner at the Woodland Hills Country Club, and she said, oh, I hear you talking to this judge, and you teach alternative dispute resolution at Cal State Northridge. I just lost my instructor uh, at at Valley. We have a paralegal program. Would you like to teach? And I said, it sounds great. Conveniently look, I grew up in the Valley. (laughs) When's it meet? Tomorrow morning, she said. And that's how I started here, and that was, it's going on 15 years. So from my stepping into that, I grew organically. She asked me to take over more. The students apparently liked my instruction. Mm-hmm. The program expanded in terms of enrollment. And uh, the new instructor, my the former director of the program, asked me to become the lead instructor, and I did. And I took over from him as the director of the extension program. I'm still the lead instructor uh, about two years ago. So at what point did you become full-time faculty? Uh, I think I'm adjunct uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Filled out the paperwork and teaching voc ed classes. Uh-huh. I've learned the difference here between credit, for credit, non-credit, not for credit, and all the nuanced systems. So I became quite versed with federal regulations and law. Now I'm becoming quite versed with state constitutional sure. and education code requirements. So, so you're wearing, wearing a number of different hats then. I mean, as the director of the extension program, yeah. there's a lot of administrative, obviously, work that's involved with yeah, that. Then on top of it, you're doing yeah, this teaching. So when you're teaching law, who are you teaching law to? It's the, our group of students through both the paralegal program, and we embed some of the courses that we provide in the paralegal program. We run a HR academy. Mm-hmm. Um, we also uh, occasionally do expedited grant-based training. We just completed one through the Los Angeles Economic Development Corporation. Well, let me ask you this. Explain the Human Resources Academy for me. Yeah, it's basically folks that want to either get into human resources or current people working in human resources have said, and this is very timely, Oh, my God, everything in HR is changing. It's been in the news, the difference between independent contractors, full-time people, the pressure of Uber, a famous case in the state of California, Dynamex, which has now been put on statutory footing or will be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything's changing. Back in the day, to be a solid HR professional, you need to take some classes somewhere, and you needed to read a book or two, and you could do a competent job, and many did. Now HR folks need to be almost what I call pocket lawyers, they need to know about workers' compensation, uh, OSHA, um, best practice, labor management practices, guild and union representation, um, pay, 
uh, training too is a big thing. And you're also doing disputes and benefits too, I guess. Disputes. No, I was just going to come to that. Disputes and benefits. How that works. What you can. What you can decide to privately mediate. What you can't. Mm-hmm. And the law is still evolving on that. So, a lot of our students are coming. We have a wide swath of students. We've got a few high school students that are taking the class part time. That's new as of this semester. Those students are doing better than I could have ever hoped. Oh, good. It's a way of embedding training. And I'm a big believer with advanced training that it's kind of like the trendy term is mind and hands. You know, we learn by doing, mm-hmm. you know. So there's theory, then practice, and then getting really well-versed in it. So we find all our programs are good for that. So How long is the program? Our HR program runs uh, approximately four months. It meets on Thursday evenings and Saturday mornings. Our paralegal program is just shy of eight months. It's a very intensive program. It has to be because it's state statutorily compliant. Mm -hmm. We meet Monday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings, and most Saturday mornings as well. And what are the responsibilities for a paralegal? Paralegal can primarily do almost anything an attorney can do. They can't sign pleadings. They can't appear in court. There's some limited exceptions if it's just making scheduling appearances and it's been approved. They're kind of like, they stand in the same regard now that a registered nurse would to a doctor. Mm -hmm. And back in the day, a paralegal was just basically the head person in an office. Now you actually have to have some training to do it. But not only the statutes change California regarding that, but many of the institutional employers of law firms like insurance companies only want paralegals doing certain things. Akin to many hospitals, only nurses will be compensated for doing particular work versus doctors. So let me ask this. So are are students able to get a job after getting these licenses? Yes. Yes. And our student base, wide age swath, uh, mature learners. We have many students in our mid to late 20s, early 30s who are wanting either a career change or they've started somewhere and they just want to expand beyond that. So, But our students do get jobs. Obviously, I can't guarantee that everybody who comes out of the program can get a job. I wish I could. I'd have the most successful program on the earth. But it's pretty good. And everything from state labor statistics to Department of Labor statistics say the paralegal field is growing by 15% a year in terms of income and employability. Typical starting paralegal is probably going to start out at not some fabulous rate of pay, anywhere between 35000 to like forty-five to maybe 50000 But once you're tracked and you have a certificate from a program, like ours, it allows you to grow, and then you can begin getting up to 65, 80, mm-hmm. 85. I know paralegals with super specific subject matter expertise, like bankruptcy paralegals, especially Chapter 11 or business reorganization bankruptcy paralegals. Some of them are earning six figures. Oh, wow. IP paralegals, and it's it's good training. It's also a good adjunct to other sort of training. A lot of our students. Uh, this is going to sound like a plug for Valley College, but I'd say about. 15 to 20% of our students went here to get their AA and either continued on to a four-year university and then got employed, and they've come back here to get this additional training. Mm-hmm. So it's also a good, um, I'll just call it like it is, icing on the cake. To supplement a to a Yeah, to supplement to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, usually with my students, so the nice thing about this is you don't, there's no general requirements. Right. No, I, I meet with every prospective student to make sure that they have a good understanding of command of English. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not to be discriminatory. It's just court pleadings are fun primarily in English. Sure. Uh, that they have fundamental ability to understand the basic, you know, Microsoft Office suite of programs and can be dedicated to the program. Right. But they don't have to pass a, a college-level math course no. or take an English class. And So whenever I have students who want to work in um, – 
in uh, CAOT or in, in uh, HR or want to become a manager, yeah. I usually send them to extension if they're having trouble in my math classes. Yeah. Just because there's there's a pathway just from working your way up. Right, exactly. Because a lot of our training is necessarily practical. You know, my students are like, and I was just trained, teaching the last night, and I'll be teaching them again, our capstone courses, something called the practicum, where they work on a something called a motion for summary judgment that then becomes an exemplar document that they can present when they apply for jobs. Oh, great. And they're like, oh, my English isn't great. And I explain, well, you know, most legal pleadings are not like British literature from the 1800s. Don't get me started, you know, where it takes <laughs> 200 pages to go. It was a nice sunny day. It's very plaintive in terms of how the legal writing, it's almost kind of, I'm dating myself, junior high school-esque or middle school-esque, mm-hmm. Warner's English grammar and composition. You know, I really like ice cream. First, I enjoy all the sugar. Second, I love all the chocolate that can be embedded in it or other things like gummy bears. Third, the butter and cream is wonderful on the taste buds and the stomach. All of this taken together triggers wonderful, happy childhood memories mm-hmm. and nice chemical reactions. Yum. It's like most legal writing is kind of of a piece with that. Again, syllogistic, though. (laughs) So what are the advantages of taking these courses at Valley and not at, let's say, some nonprofit that's locally around here? Yeah. I'll tell you the the two dark secrets that I've found with, with a lot of vocational education. We carry the imprimatur not only of having, you know, we are WASC approved, you know. Spell that out for folks. Western Association of Schools and Colleges. And then for people who don't understand, if you were to get a degree out of this country and then you were going to have that degree transferred to some equivalent in the United States, that's the, so one of the bodies that would approve that degree. Exactly. So um, the advantage that we offer, aside from that, is that you know the community college system is, is it's part of our charter, not only transfer units to UC and CS, but voc ed training. It has been for a long time. And vocational education is becoming important again in terms of retraining or true training. You know, having studied at Oxford and being a practicing attorney, I can say I've seen a lot of instruction at certain schools, not Valley, become very ethereal is the politest way I can put it. Just let's discuss the evolution of the semicolon in late antiquity. Fascinating. And I actually Mm -hmm. like late antiquity. And and it doesn't cost $30,000. Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's there's just a whole bunch of just local nonprofits, the Corinthian colleges, the Bryman colleges that all went out of business because they were just profiting off of Students. Yeah, and I'll tell the two dark secrets about those schools. The first is that a lot of them were well-intentioned. You know, I've seen a lot of them fit Kaplan. It's like Phoenix and one other seem to be the only two that are yeah. still standing. Although, I think Kaplan's, Kaplan's did not admit guilt to lying to students, but they allegedly paid off a lawsuit yeah. where they were being challenged for that. Yeah. And then they sold themselves to Purdue for $1. Yeah. So here you have this company who sort of was being sued, yeah. paid off, sold themselves for a name, and from what I've read in, in the in the sort of relationship, Purdue's giving their name, but Kaplan has all the power in terms of who they accept and who they who pass, they right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, with a nonprofit college, there's no value in actually having a standard, right? Yeah. So what was happening with the Corinthian College is they would have 100% placement because they would. Um, have some <laughs> company hire a kid for one day yep. at graduation, yeah. and then after that, fire them, so they would have 100% placement. Yeah, so in their Marcom, it said, we have 100% placement, and people go, here's my check. Uh, they had 
But those schools had trouble for two reasons, at least this is my point of view. Uh, the first is that uh, even if they had some well-intentioned folks, the, the, the system was not, you know, they were all starting anew like entrepreneurs. And if you think teaching is easy, guess again. They also hired a lot of people that might have looked good on paper to teach but couldn't teach. You know, I'll just pull some rank yeah. here. I know you guys could. It takes a lot of dedication to teach well. It takes patience. You have to understand how to communicate critically and well. And um, and Corinthian Colleges was paying their teachers fifteen dollars an hour. Right. So you got a lot of people. <laughs> you got a lot of people who were there who were doing it solely to get it on their resume and move on. So they didn't yeah. really care about the output. Yeah. The second thing that happened is most of these schools' cost model was based on no hiccups, no up and down, and they got a lot of money. Some of them internationally, all legitimately from everything that I understand. But it's like if they had two low semesters of enrollment they couldn't make rent they couldn't pay the instructors checks were bouncing and doors were closed i've seen more schools like this close now naturally there are some training programs that are just going to go by the wayside mm -hmm. if extension said we also have a class in operating a 10 key adding machine I could do the best job of providing training in that, but that's just nobody uses that anymore, yeah. which is obsolete. But yeah. I've seen a lot of the other private schools, and I'm sure there's some that have done well. Phoenix seems to still. I think be Phoenix, standing. Phoenix is good. I, I think the I think the art institute is legitimate. I know ITT they went out of business, and then they're being sued by their investors. Yeah, DeVry has always had trouble with their accreditation. Yeah, but I think the big thing that that the community colleges have is that we accredit each we accredit each other. So. There's no sort of profit motive for us. So when we go and we look at another extension program, we can go and say these things are good and these things are bad and this should change, right? right. Whereas, you know, ITT is going to accredit DeVry. No one's going to tell on each other. Right. Right? And yeah. that's sort of the problem is that the governing body for these nonprofits yep. are other profit-making right. companies. Exactly. And it's one of those things where, you know, you don't, you don't snitch on each other. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, I've seen that, you know, but it's also part of our charter. And I have seen, because one of the things that I do as a practicing attorney, I joke, I'm what is called outhouse counsel. I'm in-house counsel and provide guidance in business operations, labor matters, related things, letters of credit. Um, you know, it ain't easy running a company. And the reality is, I do tell me, even my clients, that, you know, you have to be prepared for success, but also what, what may happen if there are bumps in the road. And I've seen... Because I grew up also in high tech, I have seen the equivalent educationally what happened with the dot com bubble in right. 2000. It was a great plan; it was well intentioned, but you know, what is that old saying? You know, uh, plans are nothing. Planning is everything. You know, and a lot of them they hit they hit some financial difficulty, or they didn't get the enrollment they expected, or they got competition. Two, three semesters, they're completely out of business. Yeah, they didn't know how to pivot. And then your credits go with that company, right? Exactly. I mean, so when that when that company dies, so does the units that you had sort of accrued with them. Yes, exactly, exactly. So you know, Valley College has been around since 1949, and you know, we're recognized and well respected in the in the community for it. So you know, have being here mm -hmm. is a is a big help to the extension programs, and you develop a name the same way that. The Monarch Day Camp has developed a name yeah. here. So. so what are the other extension programs we have? Um, we're part of Workforce Training, and I, uh, which is run by Dean Douglas Marriott. Um, some of the other programs, extension is just paralegal, human resources. Uh, we also have a legal document assistant program now mm -hmm. because the legal document assistant something is, is something that can be done. That's a short five-Saturday program. Mm -hmm. um, 
under workforce training, we have the Bus Operator Training Academy, which coordinates with the uh, Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transit Authority. We provide training for bus drivers. Yeah, one of my students just finished that. Yeah, yeah. So she's driving a bus. You know, I talk about the happy small world. I was car was in the shop a while ago and sometimes I just do I take the orange line from where I live to Valley because frankly the pass is cheaper than gas anyway and it's pleasant mm-hmm. and uh, I got a sat in the back of the bus and I heard somebody say Professor Arnold I'm all huh? and I looked up and the driver was saying it turns out that was a driver because <laughs> I teach in those classes ADA compliance okay and um, also prevention of sexual harassment and discrimination and this driver who went to the program who I heard got a job like a month later was driving the bus. And I'm like, what a small, happy world yeah, that and is. It's, <laughs> and it's a good job for, you know, it's how many, how long does it take to train to become a bus driver? I, I should know this. It takes, I think it's about, I want to say about five, six months. But and it's an amazing it, turnaround. It is. It really is. And to see the results of what you do as somebody get training. And it's not just steer here. I mean, you think about what's required to run one of the two bus things that runs on the orange line and what you have to do with the platform and the timing and the driving it. It's just, it's some substantial training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So that's been a good thing. We also have the uh, engineering, the uh, basically it's the uh, machining program, Mm -hmm. the Manufacturing Academy of Valley College that's run by a gentleman named Roberto Gutierrez. Um, and it's, it's worth mentioning this as a shout out to them. Valley College back in the day was known as a top place that was training people working, whether it was the, the old plant here in, uh, you know, lathe machining stuff. We got a lot of machinery that was parked here after World War II, which mm-hmm. was state of the art up until I'd probably say the mid 70s. For the old plant General Motors? Yeah, a lot of them would, the, the, the managers would say, hey, you over there that's, I'm going to be very blunt, that's, you know, screwing just lug nuts on wheel assemblies, you seem talented. We'll go, go to Valley, they have a program, learn how to, you know, more of the machineries, and you can get a better job here, get you off the line doing even draftsman-based work. Uh, through uh, a grant from the Haas Foundation, which runs Haas Machinery, most of the machinery now is state-of-the-art, oh, including great. some things akin to 3D printing. And I'm blown away. I'm such a geek. It's like the door closes, and the machine makes a sound that's quieter than an iPhone going off and uses a water cooling system and incredibly safe. I mean, not perfectly safe, but so much safer than the old machines. And our students are going through that program and, and they're getting employed, so it's good. What do you think sets apart your particular extension program with the paralegal and the HR from any of the other programs in the community here? You mean like from that school on the other side of the hill who starts with U and ends with A? <laughs> or any um, other program yeah, that exactly. someone might be, it's, you know. It's the other programs are good. We're very focused and relevant. I mean, for the legal program, uh, there are a lot of attorneys in the San Fernando Valley. Somebody did a study once, and I believe it's true. Having worked in a big law firm on Ventura Boulevard in Encino, I can say more than one. Um, uh, there are more attorneys working on Ventura Boulevard between basically uh, Laurel and Topanga Canyons than there are in all of Canada. <laughs> it's, 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 it's an industry here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, there are a lot, there's a lot of employment opportunities to be very basic here. So we're very focused on the, the I'll call it the plain vanilla work of, of paralegal work, the discovery, the basic motion practice, some of the fun things. I teach entertainment law and IP law, mm-hmm. how it really works so students can come out of the program ready to go and get a job. A lot of the other schools, four-year universities, and also some of the, the private schools, they hire good people, but sometimes people who are on the cusp of retirement. 
mm-hmm. uh, or who are super newbies, those scarecrow extremes. And they're good people, and many of them I've talked to them. They're good attorneys, but they ain't good teachers. Yeah. I vet all the teachers here. Uh, all of them are currently practicing. Every single person that we've got teaching here is practicing. So is it hard to find a lawyer that'll take time off to teach? Uh, it's not hard, but it's hard to winnow down somebody who wants to teach versus somebody who has the capability to teach. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, do you meet my high standards? It's saying, okay, you've got the fire in the belly. You've got to have that. Believe me, you've got to have that when you're teaching three nights a week. Um, but we want to make sure that they enjoy the teaching and that they can really convey in a constructive and fun way what they know. And mm-hmm. that takes a certain dedication. So we, we, I make sure that they have good practical capability and good theoretical understanding of what they do so they can explain the two of them to really drive the technique home. So 10 years from now, where would you see the extension program going? I hope to expand it, um, maybe including more training for things that have the same rigor that for the paralegal program, which is uh, there's a statute in the state of California, Business and Professions Code, Section 6450. Um, we're hoping to expand the offerings in the paralegal program. I'm working on also exporting it currently with the, uh, the cinema arts department, specifically oh, with Dan Watanabe. Mm-hmm. Dan and I actually were at the SC film school together. Okay. We bumped into each other a couple of years ago and we were looking at each other like two, I don't know, dare I say coyotes pacing off of a piece <laughs> of food. And then we kind of pointed at each other and said, Hey, you were, wait a minute. We were in cinema three ten together, you know? And, uh, you know, with the big new building that we're going to have here, you know, Dan's goal and Eric Swellstad's goal. And they asked me to join them also, cause I believe in it too. He said, Hey, the same way that the legal environment is strong here, say the paralegal program, we want to do additional training through what they have because the San Fernando Valley is not only where Valley college is located in production and especially post-production central but yeah. something that i know excluding shall we say the west valley san fernando valley is the most filmed area in the world yes i was driving home last night after teaching it was about it was just a quarter of 10 and i'm just had crested the berm at you know burbank over the 405 i was like and then the police showed up and they're like stop and i'm like oh god please tell me it's not another fire or mm-hmm. something and all of a sudden i saw the lights coming in the other direction they had a car with the actors in it with the film set up in the white screen and they I had see. four lapd people just saying stop so they could film this night driving scene i'm like this is so well so there's so much employability possibility yeah. for it so we might work cooperatively with them in terms of maybe some concentration or allowing students to come in, whether they're the regular AA track students to take a class. Um, I'm hoping to make some of the classes either for credit or voc ed credit so that they could essentially do a little minor concentration within an AA. Mm-hmm. You know, students here that are taking, say, literature or media arts could then come to my class and learn about entertainment law to really tie the two together. Makes their academic credentials more relevant. I, right. I mean, I've always found that that's been a big weakness of our school, is that we're right here in San Fernando Valley. We're, Disney's right by us, Warner Brothers right yep. by us. Everyone's right by us. All the post-production places are right by us, and we just don't train. I know. And companies, you know, for any administrators listening, you know, I know it's well-intentioned. Companies like what we did with Haas Machinery, or what I should say Roberto Gutierrez and team did with Haas Machinery, they're willing to loan us as a tax write-off, a legitimate tax write-off equipment, if we'll learn how to use it and train people so that they can bring these people back. It's truly a win-win-win situation. It's good for us. Yeah. It's good for Valley College. It'll be good for the students. Yeah, I think the entertainment law, I think it's wide open over here. Yeah.
it is such opportunity with that new building coming up then oh i know it's it's we saw it with the the, the walkthrough yeah. and i was like oh my god this is like on a par with the new buildings at usc there's such potential it's all good there's so much good stuff that we're really excited about it so we need to fill it with a lot of programs and instructors you know eric swellstead said oh you grew up in the business and you could teach entertainment law i said i'm in <laughs> just let me know when and where well let me ask you this um, what advice would you give to any student wanting to explore the, the law field to to go to, to become a lawyer yeah to become a lawyer it's it's what they used to say to doctors if you think you want to go into medicine you know maybe be a candy striper at a hospital check it out and what i say and you know i mentioned it here any student that might be interested just contact the extension office i or my assistant sharon i'll be happy to talk to you and come sit and audit a class or two this will give you a feel for what it's like I've had some of the students here taking undergraduate business law or accounting say, I'm kind of curious about how this would resonate, say, in, um, with evidence law, which I teach. I'm like, come sit in the evidence law class. You don't take the final, but you can listen to the lecture and learn the fundamentals of evidence in context from the way that paralegals and even young attorneys would, would mm -hmm. work it. You can really get a feel for it. And do you believe law is still a good field for for um, for lawyers right now or yeah it's going through some changes it's it's not the instantaneous make a lot of money thing that it used to be in the day but a lot of professions aren't anymore but for those lawyers that are committed and willing to put in the work mm -hmm. there's still a lot of opportunity out there so is there ever any benefit and does anybody ever pursue the paralegal program first be, before coming a lawyer or yeah. do people bypass that about, about 10 percent of my students have gone on to law school Three that I know about in the past five years have become attorneys. Yeah. So it's it's that's I think that's kind of cool, and that's a great way to learn the nuts and bolts of of laws to to move forward into that field that yeah. way. Yeah, I've I've had a number of students who who are paralegals, and then they come back to school saying, "All right, I'm going to take my math and I'm going to go to law school now." Yeah. And the nice thing about law school is you just have to take the prereqs. You don't have to actually get a degree. Right. You can just take the classes and then just go to law school. So um, I have a lot of students who are paralegals who are who are inspired because because of the paralegal program. Yeah. And I've actually found that the lawyers I deal with who were law clerks or paralegals are actually become better lawyers. They know everything. So it's like if you were going to go under the knife for surgery, do you want a doctor who can, you know, talk to you theoretically about Gray's Anatomy or one that can actually use yeah. the scalpel and the suture and get the work done? Yeah. <laughs> And they, they know what the job looks like. Exactly. And the, the nice thing about that, too, is that they usually get really good advice from the people they're working for. Yeah. Right? So a lot of times when, you know, I have someone who's 18, wants to be a lawyer, and I start asking them questions, the only thing I really get from them is I want to make a lot of money. Never I, a good answer. And I, I tell them that that's, <laughs> then you should probably not consider law, right? Yeah. But when you have the paralegals and they come back and they're, they're going to go to law school, they can tell you exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. I'll have a conversation with them. I'm like, and they go, I'm, I'm with you. I have, I have four lawyers that are watching me. Exactly. They told me what to do. I'm good. Exactly. And I feel a lot more confident. For yeah. Them. So that's, it's, you know, and I've had the practical training is good. You know, I've been asked, you know, why do I stay here? Not in a negative sense, but I'm like, you know, I get more satisfaction and do also feel that this is the growing way of education of, of where it's going. The community college system, I think, is still one of the great systems in the state of california and the biggest problem we have with marketing is very simple it's people go oh my god i've never driven down burbank or fulton i didn't even know valley was here but then once they find out oh my god and what's what's on offer yeah let, yeah let alone the programs that are here exactly 
exactly. So it's, uh, you know, our program is of a piece with that. We've shared a lot with us so far. Yeah, it's and, a lot uh, of good stuff. I wanted to ask you also about your own podcast. Is that something that you're still pursuing? I am. There was a there was a pause in that. Uh, my best friend, uh, unfortunately, had passed away recently. I'm sorry. Supporting his family. Thank you. So, but uh, the podcast I do is called Law Connections. It's uh, covers law, but then the practical aspects of it. It's not quite just me yakking with somebody else for an hour and a half. There are great programs like that across the board. It's it's very much not the Joe Rogan experience. <laughs> it's more of an explication of, of what's going on and how it's relevant. For example, I talk about uh, how accountancy issues in terms of management for somebody who worked for Lisa Kudrow became a key case in the state of California and the implications of that both for the business and people in the field, which includes lawyers and paralegals and even legal secretaries, that'll probably be going live, I think, December, as soon as I'm done grading paper. Wow. <laughs> and then what's the name of the podcast? It's called Law Connections. Okay. Yeah. People can find that in all the typical channels when yeah, it's ready. Yeah, it'll be available iTunes. through iTunes and all those good things. So, you know, in about 20 minutes per episode. Great. Okay. So, it's a nice you know, car drive. Exactly. It's good drive time structure. <laughs> Well, Jonathan, if someone wants to get a hold of you and find out more about the extension program and, and dig deeper into it, what's the best way to contact you? Just give us a call. That's the easiest thing. If I said our HTTP address, it would be very long, and then you miss one letter and you get mm -hmm. 404 errors. Just, just call the extension office. Our direct line is 818-997-0967. For students here or anybody driving by, uh, we're in the Administration and Career Advancement Building, Suite 1301. As you walk in the front door off the roundabout, I've got to call it a roundabout, having to knock. Oxford. It's mm -hmm. the first floor right as you go through the double doors. You can't miss it. So okay, that's where the extension office is. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to the Valley College Connection radio show and podcast with Professors Scott Weigand and John Kawai. If you would like to be a guest, recommend a topic, or find out more information, please email kvcm at lavc.edu. That's kvcm at lavc.edu. This has been a production of 95.1 KVCM Monarch Radio, The Voice of Valley College, and The Broadcasting Club. Thank you for listening.